Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we'll be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with a substance use challenge and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This month, we are bringing you an episode inspired by the Clinical Training Center for Sexual and Reproductive Health's Clinician Cafe, utilizing the intersection of family planning and harm reduction in communities. In this episode, I talk with Casey Johnson, a harm reduction specialist, and Russell Campillo, a peer educator. They share their personal experience engaging with clinicians, the intersection of harm reduction and sexual reproductive health, and what guidance they have for clinicians addressing harm reduction with their patients. And without further ado, let's get talking. Well, hey, listeners, I'm here with Casey and Russell here to talk about harm reduction in clinical spaces. Russell and Casey, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Do you guys want to do a little introduction yourself, kind of what you do day to day, all the hats you wear? Russell's Uh, pointing at Casey. Casey Johnson. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Pointing at Casey because she actually has on the Captain and Tennille hat, so go for it. That's true, I do. My name is Casey Johnson. I'm an abstinence practicing harm reductionist in the Casey metro area. I've been in the harm reduction space for about 15 years. First as a participant, I was accessing Queen Sharps um, and regular HIV testing. And then as a volunteer and now as a paid professional. And uh, my name is Russell Campillo. I am a uh, former substance user living with HIV that uh, I actually am a public speaker related to both of those topics uh, throughout Kansas City at uh, Kansas City University. And I've, that's actually how I met Casey. So it's really great to actually be in a, another space with her. Um, and I am also a community advocate. Well, I've, in other words, uh, what I like to say is uh, advocacy big mouth. Um, and so I actually do have the opportunities to go to DC and, um, shake my fists and like, give us money because we need help. So, um, and explain my story. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Awesome. Thank you both. Do we want to, and we can popcorn this, whoever, or if only one of, one of you wants to answer, that's fine too, but start talking a little bit about why harm reduction practices and philosophies might be important in clinical spaces. So I kind of, I'll kick that one off. I think uh, might be a good way to start. Um, So I think harm reduction in clinical spaces is very important because we can't really expect people who are in whatever portion of their version of recovery to actually just um, have it all from the get-go. Like, um, I did not get sober, you know, okay, I'm using drugs today, I'm sober tomorrow, and that's it. Um, There's more to it than that. And there has to be a little less of an expectation um, because, just for transparency, abstinence works for me. It does not work for many, many people. Uh, 12 steps work for other people and it does not work for me. So Mm -hmm. um, there's many, many different ways um, and key points to recovery, including uh, people smoking marijuana. You know, it's not federally legal um, and it's not something that I can recommend, you know, recommend in the place where I work now, um, which is actually rediscovered mental health. So I've kind of 
uh, migrated a little bit more into the substance portion. And so, um, and I work with women that either come in just individually or they come in with children. And so I'm learning this is a whole new thing for me. So um, I can't have the expectations that they're going to be 100% successful every single time because it's nearly an impossible expectation to have, um, including my own expectation of myself to be sober uh, immediately. And it didn't work. So that's, I think that's a big reason as to why it's important and it reduces stigma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would also add, it's important in clinical spaces, even when or if when a person's goal isn't sobriety, isn't recovery. Um, in clinical spaces, I would argue that those aren't always the best places to talk recovery. Um, to Russell's earlier point, because so often what is sort of pushed or defined as recovery is just abstinence-based. It's just 12-step based. Um, and so how do we broaden the conversation in an effort to destigmatize and, and, and in an effort to keep people safe and healthy regardless of what their sort of end goal is, um, especially with such an unstable, volatile, dangerous drug supply now i don't i don't have time i don't have money i don't have resources um to always play the long game like i need to keep people safe and healthy today this hour Mm -hmm. this minute and if i can get clinicians more comfortable with understanding that the spectrum of harm reduction is important regardless of where that spectrum may or may not end. Um, yeah, the better off folks who use drugs are and will, and, you know, and will be. Uh, thank you both. What, what else would you want clinicians to know about harm reduction or recovery services? When they're engaging with clients? Um, I think for me, first and foremost, is it's pragmatic. It's just smart. Um, And then on top of that, it's compassionate. It's, you know, kind. It's loving. It's dignified. It's respectful. It's, you know, it's all these things. But also, it just makes sense. And folks who use drugs are not a monolith. The oppressive structures at which an individual um, lives under or within will directly impact their ability to assess and respond to, you know, possible risks or harms associated with their drug use. What you might think is the most important thing is not necessarily what the participant or the client or the patient identifies as the most important thing or the most risky or harmful. Um, so be, be co-conspirators with the person that you are serving. Let them guide um, treatment or, you know, whatever kind of plan you're putting forward. It's 
to me, the difference is like, are we talking at a person or are we talking mm-hmm. with a person? Mm. What do you think, Russell? I think that's one of the biggest things is being able to show a client what self-determination is. Um, and I use this with folks all the time and people are like, self-determination, self-determination. And I'm like, listen, so um, I'm not giving that to you as as a, uh, uh, you know, as something you can put in your back pocket that you can like, like a, a yellow card for a soccer referee, like, um but like i think that the the important pieces to that is sdoh or social determinants of health or across the board like um very important but i think because dsm-5 has taken so long to actually show that substance use is a mental health structure um itself and it's the addiction that is the mental health it's not the substance. It's it's not the alcohol. It's not the meth or heroin or uh, PCP or formaldehyde or any of that stuff. It's not those objects. It's the mindset of having an addictive personality of some kind. Because I can tell you, I can you know, I have I have several folks in my life that have stopped using syringes, but syringes with drugs in them they're using a saline solution to still do the injection because they're not addicted to the drug anymore. They're still addicted to the process. Mm. And so they're doing something that is harm less harmful to their body because, okay, if we go to the doctor and we go in, they put a bag and they, you know, stick us and let do a, you know, IV drip of saline solution to help, uh, moisturize our insides and um you know they basically they do that all the time and so they're they're really reducing the harm and i think that um however we might do that they need to understand what that process is so because you have a degree a master's degree a doctorate a uh it doesn't really matter Unless you have the experience, and I was just having this argument last night, don't, you can, you can teach and instruct without the experience. But if you're going to do that, ensure that you're putting somebody in that light with you and using your privilege as somebody who has always been sober or has very minimal experience um, to, to have that space. Let them lead the conversation. Um, and I, you know, I kind of, my argument last night, which they still didn't quite understand is that's like me teaching a class about being a person of color mm-hmm. to a group of people of color. I'm, I'm real white, mm-hmm. like, and that's not okay for me to do. So I'm going to find somebody who I know can lead that objective and say, this is what I would like to accomplish. Do you agree with this? Do you think this is something sufficient that the community needs? And are you willing to actually step up and talk about mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. HIV is like my, my go-to primarily. So that's how I really feel about it. That's just, there are so many different important key points that has to be there. Um, but we're never going to have them all, mm-hmm. you know, and social determinants of health, substance, uh, excuse me, addiction itself is a social determinant of health. You know, some of us for alcohol in particular are missing taste buds. 
that's been proven. Like there's a whole like tongue, <laughs> tongue print test that they've done. So, yeah. I also love that point. Yeah. Substances are amoral. Like it's not the alcohol that did the X, Y, Z. It's not the fentanyl that did the X, Y, Z. Um, and I think that we don't talk about that enough because most people who use these substances do so in a way that is not problematic, is not chaotic, does not cause harm unto others and or to themselves. And I think so often we can get caught up with, right? Like we saw this in the nineties and the two thousands, how we vilified methamphetamine and further stigmatized folks who utilize methamphetamine that didn't keep anyone safer. That didn't keep anyone more sober. That didn't do, I think, maybe what was intended. And instead, we just further marginalized people who had very valid reasons for using that stimulant. Um, so, yeah, I love that point, Russell. Substances are amoral. That is not, if you're using it, so are sharp, mm-hmm. amoral. Mm-hmm. I do too. I really, I also loved your point about it, about focusing on self-determination for whomever you're working with, because I think especially for clinicians, that's the model that is instilled for addressing any issue or challenge, right? If I'm a cardiologist talking to a patient with heart failure, okay, here are all your options for intervening to manage your symptoms and and keep your heart failure manageable and a life and in a way a life you want to live let's talk about how which interventions appeal to you or what's going to work for you and the life you want to live i just think that's such an a an approachable way yeah yeah and that's the one thing like right now like i have a subdermal heart monitor and, and it's bothering me like i can feel it just right below my skin. And so um, I'm just having a conversation with my partner yesterday and I'm like, so I've been to the doctor, I've been to my PCP or primary care provider. And then I've been to the heart doctor. I, they're like, I'm not seeing anything. And I'm like, take the monitor out. And he goes, no. Why? I don't, I take, go ahead and pull it back out where you put it in there. Cause now you're not finding anything. I'll go ahead and have it put back in if I need to. I don't want it in there now. Um, And so, but his response to me was like, I know better than you do. You don't. This is my body. This is what I would like to be in it and what I would like to not be in it. So can you please remove it? And so um, in talking to my partner, I was like, I responded. I was like, this is BS. You know, this is bullshit. I don't want you to be making the decisions. I need your help to make a decision that is best for my life. The one thing I, in, in reference to this that he did say is, well, we don't see anything. Do you want medicine or do you feel like you're okay? Well, I mean, cause I'm not going to give you any medicine unless you absolutely feel like you absolutely have to have medicine. I'm like, no, I already take enough meds. Thanks. I don't need any more added to it, you know? Um, and you know, some, some folks have meds for, mental health and some folks have meds for HIV and then they got meds to poop and they got meds to not poop. And then uh, I mean, like, um, geez, you know, give me a break, but allow me to assist 
in the decision making process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that I think that really sticks to it. It's interesting. Um, I'm a new mom. I have a young baby, and it's so interesting the ways that this conversation butts up against like parenthood and making choices for other folks. Obviously, I'm responsible for this tiny human and for creating a, an environment where they can, um, you know, achieve optimum wellness and safety and nourishment and all these things. And it's so interesting, the decisions that have been made for me by medical providers or clinicians in the past, as it relates to HIV status, hepatitis status, um, substance use disorder, opiate use disorder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that is now not only affecting me, but it's affecting my child and Mm -hmm. the advice that I get for their sort of care and, and the things that I'm told to do, um, that are quote, best practice as determined by a clinician, not by me, not by how well I know myself or my child or my family's needs or um, like one that's coming to mind is, you know, being discouraged from breastfeeding because of transmission of HIV. Even though we know that that is a less than 1% chance. And it's really discouraging when you as the patient are coming with um, better research, more up-to-date knowledge than your clinician has or is well-versed in. Um, yeah, and I'm always so curious, like, what does the chart say when I decline a certain thing or I mm-hmm. push back on a certain, quote, recommendation? I'm using air quotes for those of you who are listening. Um yeah, to Russell's point, it's it's my body, it's my business. If I don't want to do things a particular way, then that is my prerogative. And I can't really think of another arena where clinicians believe that they um I mean, I have I have loved ones who have been diagnosed with cancer. I have loved ones who've uh decided to treat it in in more quote, like traditional ways or, or utilizing more, quote, traditional modalities and then others who sought alternative modalities and both were treated with the utmost care, respect, and most importantly, trust. Trust that what they chose was right for them and their family and their path, et cetera, et cetera. And I've really only seen in this space that not exist. Um, so fascinating it's like as soon as a person is experiencing a positive hiv status or a positive hepatitis status or has been diagnosed with certain mental health um, diagnoses or substance use diagnoses then all of a sudden they're like unable to make quote good decisions about next steps or further care or lack of um it blows my mind. Yeah, you're you're stripped of autonomy and agency like immediately. 
Mm-hmm. I think one of the big things in, and to Casey's point is that if, if I come to you and I say, and, and there's huge differences in response, right? And so if a doctor comes to you and says, you have cancer, okay, great. Now what? I'm looking for, re- I'm looking for answers. If a doctor comes to you and says you have HIV, you're like, fuck, it's over. Yeah. Okay. Because that's how our training has been taught to us. This is the end. And like, the, I, what is the song? This is the end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how I, every time I picture that in my head, that's what I hear. Um, and so what happens is that when you go to your outside uh, people and now the doctor has told me this on the left side of my shoulder, I have cancer. And I go, I have cancer. And they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. How, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And you go to the same person or other individual on my right shoulder is the uh, HIV status. And now I'm disclosing my HIV status. They're like, oh, are you okay? <laughs> yeah. And also, and what you did you to, do to deserve it? Yeah. Right. So... I've, the, the difference is, is that HIV is transmitted in, in particular different ways across the board. And again, I had another, uh, same person, same discussion related to like breastfeeding. And I'm like the, the ability for them to breastfeed without a child being, uh, born with HIV is high. Like, well, they can't do that because the doctors are discouraging that. I'm like, yeah, the doctors are discouraging it because what do you do in living in a patriarchal society in order mm-hmm. to get the people that are in your society to believe in you? Mm-hmm. You don't tell them. Yeah. You don't tell them the truth. And so, um, you know, and I used uh, Texas as an example because last year, year before, in the last year and a half, they were talking about removing the access for PrEP and things like that. So if you look at the state of Republican Texas, primarily, and uh, the conversation is um, anti-gay, anti-queer, anti-drug, anti-everything but Jesus, um, what would be the first, what would be the best way to get rid of the people that you are against? Stop providing free HIV meds stop providing clean syringes and stop providing preventative medication like prep done it's going to take a little time but you got to have some patience so i mean i can get so on a roll with that conversation that you know for me i'm now in a position where i wasn't before so i'm just kind of going rambling on sorry i do that quite often so if you have questions, please just like put your hand up no, so I can see you. Like, I really want to get this one in. So um, when I talk about HIV, so when I came out, I put having kids on the back burner. Like, so I'm openly gay, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I kind of came out in my early 20s. And then I came out again in my early 20s. And so my mom and I were having this conversation. So this is my coming out story to my mom. Everybody, I came out to everybody else but her first. And they're like, yeah, we know. I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> Fuck off. Um, and so I come out to my mom and my mom's like, um, it's okay. 
I, I, I still love you. It doesn't matter. I just think it's a phase. And I said, okay, that was the first time. <laughs> so three times later, I'm like, mom, I got to come out to you. And she goes, that's okay. I love you. I'm not going to change. It's, I just think it's a phase. So time number four, I'm like, mom, I've been fucked in the ass and I've been fucked. I've fucked men. And I was like, I am gay. She goes, okay, that's it. Fine. I'm not having this conversation anymore. <laughs> She's like, you're gay and that's it. Don't change my mind. <laughs> so, okay. So um, incredible. So yeah. I'll prove it's not a face. Now with the conversation, <laughs> I'm going to show you. Yeah. Um, tell me what not to do because that's the first thing I'm going to do. And that's like harm reduction is very much that way too. Like, tell me not to use drugs because that's I'm going. I'm going to sh- give me the tools and show me what to do with the tools, and that will kind of change some of those some of those things. Um. Uh. So when we talk about that coming out story. And then now I'm coming into uh, living with HIV. Now I'm coming into an HIV diagnosis. still haven't really used and dabbled into drugs very, very much um, to speak of at all. Um, And so now I'm never having kids. I absolutely, I wrote, I wrote the letter um, in beautiful hand calligraphy, handwritten writing. And I took the paper and I put it in a trash can. I set that shit on fire. And then I buried it. So I was never having kids. Now I'm in a position in my life where my partner can actually carry a child. And I didn't have an understanding of what trans was. And so now um, I have started actually like pushing into and really leaning hard into substance because my partner has substance experience. My partner has um, tons of education related to HIV. And they're like, that's okay because there's plenty of things that we can do. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean? And so you're like, you didn't know about me? And I'm like, well, I do now, but <laughs> dang. So now I'm having to relearn all, all of this process. And let me tell you how confused my mother is. <laughs> so she was, she was like, what do you mean they have a vagina? I was like, you know, it is what it is. I was like, but you better get the fucking pronouns right. So, um, <laughs> Did you have to have another coming out, Russell? <laughs> oh my God, she is she. She literally she goes. You thought I was confused to begin with, <laughs> so. But you know, I mean, ultimately, like this whole conversation is really great. I have to put myself on mute. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, I wish our listeners could hear it. He's cackling. <laughs> uh, he has the best laugh. So sorry. Um, <laughs> Don't it, apologize. I mean, joy is wonderful. I'll go right ahead. Somebody else needs to talk because I'm going to keep going. <laughs> I'll start giggling too much and I won't be able to stop. <sighs> I mean, what I heard, I mean, I heard so many good things there. Um, but two points that really stuck out is like cars are risky, but we don't tell anyone to stop driving. We just make cars and roads safer. And we, empower people with the knowledge. Yeah. Air quotes for sure. We empower people with the knowledge of how to operate their vehicle, how to operate their vehicle next to other folks operating their vehicle. Um, And we have this sort of collective agreement that things will mostly go this one way and it keeps people safer. Um, And then the second thing that stuck out to me is like, 
evolution. Like this stuff is ever changing. More shall always be revealed. Um, your mother is a you know phenomenal example, and so are you. So am I. Like I, yes, absolutely. Never thought that marriage and parenthood and 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 was ever going to be a part of my life or my story. Um, and then more was revealed. And it's because at every step of the way, not only was I aware of, but I was made comfortable to use harm reduction tools. And I continue to, um, and my spouse continues to. And if it weren't for that, I, it never would have occurred to me to pursue these endeavors. Um, just like it didn't occur to Russell to pursue certain parts of, you know, your journey until it was made clear that you could do so from an empowered space, from a safe place. Um, and I don't just mean like physically safe, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, et cetera. And what comes with that is like an ongoing education, not only for the person sort of in it, but those around them also. I mean, yeah, I definitely had loved ones who were concerned, um, not just about the physical sort of requirements of being a parent and being a caring parent, right? Being a, a person who would be pregnant. Um, but yeah, the, the mental and emotional after that, what is that? How do you navigate? I'm also abstinence practicing. How do you navigate abstinence? And sleepless nights, you know, or how do you navigate like being married to an abstinence practicing person, um, engaging in harm reduction, also being responsible for a little tiny baby, like, you know, and figuring out the ways that we can make these tools accessible to all folks experiencing any and all sort of life changes, experiences, transitions, et cetera, I think is a tall order for sure, but is maybe like the most important thing we'll do. What is that quote? That's like, no one is free until everyone is free. We cannot reduce harm anywhere until we can sort of reduce it in a broad way. In a broad, <laughs> I don't know how to finish that sentence. Uh, I think that's beautiful, Casey. And thank, thank you both for sharing such personal and, and vulnerable stories. I, I mean, I do think that's, that is how we start freeing people and changing the world, right? Is, is sharing stories and, and going back, Russell, to what you were saying earlier about that, the, the vitalness of having people with lived experience lived or living experience leading the charge is that that lived experience or that living experience that's expertise. And I think that's something we really either fail to see or forget. Um, I, and I agree with that. So something that I've learned and like my whole conversation from last night is coming up, uh, so uh, this it was a really volatile conversation to start with. And then as time went on, I had to call. I'm like, listen, I'm, 
the the information exchange is not processing correctly. And so um, one of the things, too, that I was taught through uh, my former supervisor, Latricia Miles, um, at KC Care, she's an amazing human being, but she taught me things about JIPA and BIPA. And if you don't know what that is, MIPA is the meaningful involvement of people living with AIDS. JIPA is the greater involvement of people living with AIDS. <clears throat> and so we like to actually trying to change that stigma of, um, you know, you are an educated. There's a couple of stigmas there changing the stigma of AIDS because AIDS is not actually a disease. AIDS is a collection. HIV is the disease. It's just advanced. And so that's what we should call it. Get rid of the term. AIDS should not even be part of that conversation anymore. Mm-hmm. Your HIV is advanced and you have this also that you're mm-hmm. you know, having to deal with pneumonia, whatever. Um, and then also, if you, if you remember back in the day, like I think Casey and I are really close, maybe in age. I'm not going to tell what her, my age is, so it doesn't disclose her age. Um, <laughs> But um, they had FUBU. Okay, FUBU is for us, by us. It's for people of color, right? So in, in, in that same realm, we want to think about people living with HIV. We want to people about, uh, think about people living with substance use disorder and mental health and uh, housing insecurity and instability and um, inadequate access to care, okay? Um, and so we just want to make sure that nothing with, uh, about us without us. Don't make decisions on my behalf without my fucking permission. Period. Don't make those decisions unless you've asked us. And just because you have a few people that support you and some uh, some way of, um, you know, again, it's like me teaching a class on people of color. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to get the point across because I'm not a person of color and I don't actively know what that means. I'm not a trans person, um, on any end of the spectrum or the center of the spectrum. I don't know what that's like. I do know the experience of what people have shared with me, but it is my duty not to share their story it is my duty to bring them forward, put them in the center, and let the light be on them. I can facilitate all day long. Let me step out of the way. Use my privilege to push you into that light and allow you to create whatever your speech is, whatever your talking points are, whatever your platform might be. Let me place you there. And people will then also look at me. Be like, man, I wonder if he'll do that for me. I'll be like, yep, yeah, here you go. You know, and I'll, I'll speak all the time. Um, it's kind of like um, I go to this is a, a recent experience to um, and at the point, you know, any anything out. But I will do engagements for free. Gladly. But I always say, hey, can we think about this for just a second and have the conversation? Um, can we be paid for what we're doing? How valuable is our work to to uh, the community? And a a little bit goes a long way. Even the thought of a little bit, let me think about it. Let me ask a question. Those little tiny pieces, me personally, I'll still do it. You know, if the answer is no, I'm still going to do it. 
So, but I think that that's, that's a key piece for people in our community is I am, um, again, I, I, my former supervisor also said, yeah, don't have to keep saying that I can see it, but we're on a, on a podcast. So you can't really see I'm very white I'm very white. And I have a privileged space to be able to step out into the light and say, Oh no, 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 no. This is not how this is going to work because I have better people that I can bring into this, into this space that can explain to you because they have that experience. You know, I'm, you know, that's why, you know, I, I, I appreciate Casey's like, Hey, have you talked to Russell? <laughs> you know? Um, mm-hmm. so that felt good to me. Um, so. Well, I think you can't do, I, I was recently sitting on a, um, like a feedback panel uh, for a local media campaign geared toward harm reduction. And so we're reviewing kind of what this outside agency had like decided, you know, whatever. And it just was so abundantly clear to those of us with lived and living experience that they had not engaged anyone like us since you know at all since the beginning of the we came to the we came to the table way late and it just went to show like how ineffective the campaign was going to be and how much time and effort had been wasted that if we had been tapped for our expertise you know 9 months ago that if we'd been tapped for our expertise paid for our expertise you know 6 or 9 months ago we'd be in a, in a much different and I would argue better position um, today. But that requires a couple of things to Russell's earlier point, which is A, we are experts. B, we do deserve compensation for this level of expertise and knowledge and experience. And B, not everyone, like I had said earlier, not everyone is going to feel comfortable enough to out themselves as being a person with lived and living experience. And maybe they are in, in some categories, but not in others. Um, I don't tell everyone in every space, you know, I don't disclose everything to everyone in every space. Um, and that's for a lot of different reasons, but I think what's cool about what Russell and I have identified and have identified um, when we, sit and talk together is that we can stand up for who we stand on and we can leverage our privilege Mm -hmm. in a particular way. And it, it does make it easier to sit across the table um, from Russell and share certain things that I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing if he weren't there. Um, And so how do we leverage not only our individual privilege, but like our friendship and, and where we work um, professionally to further these conversations in an effort to protect those or those of us who are more stigmatized than Russell and I, um, I would never, you know, I'm always going to be mindful of how a person may be exploited. Um, and so I think Russell and I are good at like vetting a space or like vetting folks, um, or agencies before we kind of like introduce someone who may be more vulnerable than us. And I think even that deserves like um, 
payment like that. That's a heavy emotional labor to have these kinds of conversations and to be thinking about um, how to sort of, yeah, stand up for who you stand on. Well, one of I've, I've loved where the conversation, oh, for the listeners, we're getting to see a very cute baby. Um, I, I've loved how, how your willingness to share like personal examples. I'm wondering if, if you have examples where you've engaged with providers or clinicians and things went well, like you felt like they did a really good job. Oh, what a beautiful sound. Um, where they have been very like allowed your allowed your autonomy even sounds silly, right? Like you just inherently should have autonomy. It's not like they're giving you permission, but where you have been able to step into your autonomy and be self-directed. I think that um, I have a really hard time. I can point that out where um, I've had clients who've had providers that have had those autonomous experiences and have done really, really well. <laughs> this baby. Hi, baby. <laughs> um, and have done, see, it's so much happier now. Um, and so the, the client has been able to grasp that autonomy um, and make those decisions based on education, based on the support they were receiving from maybe a peer educator or somebody who looks like me, feels like me, sounds mm-hmm. like me, smells like me, um, has my culture, has my background, has whatever this might be. Um, and then it's just, um, I kind of struggle with that a little bit cause I'm kind of going through that process now, like with, excuse me, um, with my heart monitor, my, my brain is saying like, I need mm-hmm. responses. I don't need, well, sorry that happened. That doesn't tell me what's happening. Um, uh, and then, you know, just additional pieces to that. So I'm really struggling and I'm, I'm probably in the middle of trying to find, um, a different provider who has my, who has an interest at heart and then, um, who is willing to, uh, two-sided. I had, and feel like I have autonomy in the the occupations that I've had the last two um, and to be able to say, this is how this makes me feel. I am a person living with HIV. Don't tell me this is, this is okay because it's not, or mm. this is really great. I am a person living with HIV. This is awesome. We want you to do more of this. Um, and so I guess I'm just, I, honestly, I'm really struggling with the, my own autonomy and my appointments. Um, a good example is that, uh, I said, I need to make sure that I fill out the HIPAA forms that allows my partner to receive all of my medical information with or without my permission. Mm-hmm. I need to do that now. Well, we don't know what an ROI, I said ROI or a release of information. They're like, we don't know what an ROI is. I was like, you work for, um, complete shade HCA hospitals and you don't know what an ROI is. And then I got terminated for being mad about it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. So yeah. Well, and it's, termination and it's of care. 
Yes. When you because push back, said, it's so uh, real. Because I said the F word. Mm-hmm. So I was being attacked. And also there is, there is a list on their website that says, um, if you need to speak to your provider, it is within your right, and it's code, like code of ethics, um, within your right to speak to this provider. And so through the HCA website, I requested like, and I called, got the information, called the nurse, left a voicemail with the nurse. The nurse called me back. The nurse says, well, she's not going to call you back. She doesn't do that. And I explained to her, I said, actually, that's part of the code of ethics is that I have a right to speak to my provider and you are not my provider. And she gave me uh, a very vague response. And I said, fuck. And she goes, is there anything else I can help you with? We hung up the phone and then I get a letter in the mail within three days terminating my, my care. So it's, it's been a wild ride. And anyhow, that's a short story. No, I, so you figure out what that means now. Yeah. Totally fair. Where like examples that have gone well, aren't coming up, aren't coming to mind immediately. Mm -hmm. So sorry. That was your experience, Russell. No, it's fine. It's I mean, it's not fine, but you know, I'm I'm learning how to deal with it. Right. It's unfortunate because I feel like that. Deal with it. <laughs> that's so much more common. Yeah. Like what you're and saying, that, and that. Yes, and and that is the thing. As a person with privilege, I literally turned to them and I said, "This is exactly why people without privilege quit, and they die." Mm-hmm. Specifically. It's bullshit like this that you throw in their face and say, you can't do this. You can't do this. Fuck you. It's mine. I own this piece. You do not. I live in it. I have to survive in it. And I would like to thrive in it. So can you please help me do that or not? And if you can't, get the fuck out of the way. Yeah. If somebody wants this, again, another mother conversation. So. When the reversal of Roe v. Wade came out, I had a discussion with my mom. I called her. I was like, how does this make you feel? And she goes, I knew something was behind it. She goes, I swore I would never have this conversation with you. And I said, it's okay. I just have questions because I've never thought to ask you. Hmm. And she goes, I had the opportunity. And for various reasons, this was one of the options. Um, And she said, I just chose not to. She said, but I had the choice. And it affects me because people don't get that opportunity. And I feel like it's within our rights to do so. Um, And so I I do share that I am the product of a different choice um, that was, was given and she was allowed and she was permitted to have that opportunity to say yes or no and moved forward with, with my life. And 45 years later, here I am, you know, trying to support her in the best way that I know how and say like, Hey, how does this make you feel? And I never thought I'd be doing that, but you know, anyway, Mm. Casey, I have like Russell, I have been terminated from, um, care on a, few different occasions and I always think to myself you know and they always provide some bullshit reason why um 
it's always been after I gave some pushback or challenged some uh, policy that that was treated as doctrine. Um, and where I have received phenomenal care is always has always been in alternative. I'm using air quotes alternative um, spaces like even when we were seeking support, fertility support, over and over and over and over again, what we were being told was, well, stop taking medications for opiate use disorder. And I said, show me the research, show me where that helps fertility, where, when, how, because I can't find it. And, you know, there was never, um, a sufficient response It's that they saw a certain medication was being utilized and they made assumptions about why that medication was being utilized. And very quickly it became apparent that we were not deemed as, um, you know, fit for fit for fertility support. And that was, you know, just a microcosm of this like broader thing. Um, never mind that like insurance doesn't cover fertility support. We were paying out of pocket, you know, exorbitant amounts of money. Um, and no one could help or, or wanted to help. And I pushed back on that and we were. Yeah, received a letter in the mail that we had been discharged from care, that we were not a good fit um, for a particular fertility clinic in town. And I mean, I had immense sort of like confusion, shame, guilt. Like, did I just ruin all of our chances that I, you know, um, but ultimately I, I stand by what I said. And I often wonder what if I had been a black male expressing those same feelings? How would that have, you know, would the police have been called versus just mm-hmm. the letter in the mail that, you know, they no longer wanted us as patients. Um, and so then, I mean, my daughter was conceived without the help of a traditional fertility clinic because I reached out to people who had been where I was and said, now what? I feel so out of options. I feel so frustrated. Um, and they said, Oh, I know, I know a lady. And she is not somebody with a master's degree or somebody with a license to practice medicine. Um, but when I left her office, I felt encouraged, empowered, and hopeful. And I had not been offered those feelings in a traditional clinical space in years. Um, Mm. And yes, I mean, it's remarkable. And she looked at me and said, I think that you will get pregnant and stay pregnant within the next six months. And I thought, yeah, right lady. (laughs) And four months later I was pregnant and stayed pregnant. And this was after years of being told, we don't know what's wrong. Maybe this is, and this is a direct quote. Maybe this is just the consequence of some of your, bad decisions when you were younger. Yeah. If you, for those who are listening, Russell and I often provide a nice middle finger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Jesus. A middle finger in solidarity. Uh, Listen, your brain concept as a provider to tell me that I it was because of all my mistakes is just as bad as saying, well, I got HIV because I'm gay. Yeah, absolutely. Fuck you. Yeah. Fuck you. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, oh, my it's just so gross. It's just I like both examples you guys have shared. I'm just like, oh, that is just so gross. That's so despicable. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you feel, I mean, I, let me see for myself. I didn't feel like there was any recourse available. Like, right. I wrote to the board, the medical board. I said, you know, what I needed to say, but guess what? She's still practicing. So it's, and I'm not somebody who, um, I believe everyone, like a tenant of harm reduction is to meet people where they are and to not leave them there. So I'm not saying that she shouldn't be practicing, but she shouldn't be allowed to practice in this way. Right. Um, right. You know, exactly. Russell's showing us his mug, which says meet people where they are, but don't leave them there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, just just in general, uh, all of all of what we said, really, it sounds kind of like we're just sharing our, our our personal stories. But at the same time, I think we very much realize like, if we didn't have there's certain amounts of privilege that we don't have still, mm-hmm. um, as as, you know, Casey being a, a female who is uh, tattooed from from neck to toe and me being a quote unquote, uh, gay (laughs) man, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like (laughs) being out openly, openly gay, living with HIV, having had a substance use with dental issues that, you know, are, are hard to hide. Um, and like feeling embarrassed and having body dis, you know, uh, I don't know if it's body dysmorphia. I, don't just don't enjoy my body sometimes. And there are many, 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 many people that do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have that a similar experience. And then when you add <clears throat> now you're so here, here's the concept being a, a lesbian is really cool for a lot of cisgender men. So cool beans, bring it on. I'm all for it. You know, I'll still marry you anyway, um, as long as you sleep with your girlfriend in my, in my bed. Um, and then you have uh, the concept of like uh, being a gay man. Oh, that's gross. Okay, great. Now you have HIV. Well, you deserve that one because, you know, you're gay. And then um, as a woman, well, that's my baby too. Um, no, it's I'm the one that if without people don't understand without women, we would not have or excuse me, without people with the ability to carry children and have pregnancies to full term without them, we would not have children. Zero, zero. So it's just a bunch of swinging dicks with assholes all over the place. So try to have children on your own. It's not going to happen. Also, what's so, so interesting about that is it makes masculinity so toxic. Like oh. this idea that if you've been touched by a swinging dick, <laughs> to use your language then then that erases everything else so like yeah. if you're a person who had previously identified as a lesbian and then you have a relationship with a 
person who identifies as a man and has a penis and you have sex with that person must not be a lesbian. Like never mind, you know, possibly decades of, of relationships with other women. Oh, you're just, no, you're just not a lesbian. Or if you're a man I fi- and you, I, fi- I fixed her. Right. And I fixed I her. Fi- yeah. Yeah. And then that, if you, I did that on the other side is like, let's say you are a man with a penis who ha- you've had decades of heterosexual relationships. And then you have sex or, or engage in sex work with other cisgender men and oh i knew it he's gay and it's like <laughs> when when did like masculinity or or just having a penis suddenly become this like toxic sludge that you could never like recover from like that's insane to me so i think i think when we kind of to to reel it to uh, real that to harm reduction too is that we're not really we're talking about personal feelings and as a care provider keep your fucking nose out of it yeah keep your opinions keep your religious beliefs keep your yeah. um sometimes keep your book education the fuck out of the room because the person living in the body that you are examining is the person who knows honestly knows their body mm-hmm. whether they believe that or not and it is your job as a provider to empower us as patients um to become strong and powerful in the decision making process and making choices about our bodies and making choices about how we actually feel i'm not going to come into the room and tell you oh uh you look like you have a migraine here's this medicine I don't want you to do that. I want you to, I want to walk into the room and say, Hey, how's it going? Tell me what's going on. Why are you here? And then there's a lot of that really happening. But then the decision-making process is you're like, Nope, I'm the doctor. I'll, I'll, I'll do that for you. Well, no. and then believe what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Trust. It's what you're told. We say, be- we, we say believe the victim in most instances is, is true. Mm-hmm believe the person who needs the care Mm -hmm. this is how i'm feeling well (laughs) in an effort to be mindful of time and to kind of wrap us up and in a good grace offer of to meet clinicians and providers where they're at and not leave them there what resources would you all recommend speak out the opportunity to be in community with the people you don't understand with the people you don't know well with the people you want to serve um so maybe that looks like you know volunteering down at one city cafe three times a month or maybe that looks like um going to an open 12-step meeting and just listening Mm. or you know Get creative, find opportunity to be around the people that you don't understand, that you're not familiar with, that you want to serve better. Um, And then just shut up, just shut up and listen. (laughs) And what you'll find out is that over time, you'll begin to build trust with those communities 
and you'll be invited and um, you'll start to share space in a really meaningful way and sort of almost by osmosis, like the way that you practice and the way that you interact will begin to change. Um, Mm. And it's like one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And then I would challenge folks to go a step further and to educate the people that they're in community with. So if you, um, as a practitioner, as a clinician, seek out good information and seek out community with folks, come back and share that with your colleagues. Um, I think the ripple effect, like you have to be mindful of that and use that to your advantage. Thank you, Casey. And I, I agree with that. Thanks, Casey. Um, is that if you're becoming a provider for money, stop where you're at and don't. Just don't. Because there's a lot of stressors that you're going to be presented with when you're actually in, in those scenarios that you're not going to be prepared for in medical school. Um, and then what is going to happen is if you would like to work in suburban white county of where, where, whatever city, um, and you don't want to work with people of color or you don't, maybe you don't even think about that in general. You know, I just want to treat people great. You're going to get diseases that make you feel, um, well, how is this ethically okay for me to be doing? Um, and if you're using your political ideology, your religious ideology, your conceptual ideology, and your book ideology, you're not actually going to be treating the patient in, in like patient ideology. So, um, and I can't piggyback enough off of Casey in regards to that is do service work, do service work for free in the community um, that not in the community that you wish to treat in the community that you don't want to treat because when as uh, and again as a white person putting myself into situations where I am the individual I'm the token individual versus being surrounded by people of color I need to learn how to do that and gain comfort. It's not other people's jobs to um, change what they're doing so I can be comfortable. It is my job to be uncomfortable to learn how to grow from where I already was. And if I can't do that, then I'm in the wrong profession. Mm. I am absolutely in the wrong space, wrong time, and I need to learn how to grow from that. And comfort is not growth. That's it. Yeah, practice humility. Mm. Get humble. Get uncomfortable and get humble. Absolutely. That's awesome. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Always. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org, 
that's purerecoverynow.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.